0: Thank you, Vince. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. I am from California. We are temporarily residing in Scottsdale. We've been here for about a month and we'll be here another month. And it's my first time to Flagstaff. We got up here uh, a couple days ago. And after uh, being a Californian and living in Arizona, we quickly discovered that there is lingo or ways of pronouncing things uh, in Arizona that are different than California. And so California may be having a little bit more of a Spanish kind of influence, and I'm discovering Arizona has a little bit more of a Native American influence. Uh, I, I found myself telling the pastors at one of the redemption churches that I'm going to Papago Park for a hike. And he said, first of all, if you don't want to seem like you're from out of state, don't call it papago, because you sound like you're Italian or something, and, and talking about this papago, it's, it's papago, correct? Is it? And uh, another thing I discovered is, is they were, uh, as I was talking to them, they were saying, um, where else are you preaching? And I said, Flagstaff, and they go, oh, you're, you're preaching at Flag. And I said, well, Flagstaff, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're preaching at Flag. And even as I introduced myself to my neighbors this morning, uh, they said, yeah, we've been up here in Flag, and and so I'm discovering if you really want to be an insider, I just say, yeah, I went to Flag. (laughs) So um, it's my pleasure to be here in Flag with you. And if you're ever down in our area, you can go hiking with us at Papago Park. Um, But it is my pleasure, uh, partially because we are in this series, Law Walked Among Us, but also because uh, Vince mentioned uh, the Praying Life Seminar, and uh, usually a seminar on prayer is highly unpopular. One prayer is kind of this thing that makes us uncomfortable because we're not quite sure what to do or whether we're doing it right, and so why do I want to go in a place, let alone an entire Saturday, to be reminded of my discomfort, And secondly, who is going to actually teach us? Is he going to berate us? Is he going to be making us feel guilty? And so just to ease some of your fears, uh, one, there is no berating. Number two, uh, from the very get-go, one of the things that uh, they do in the seminar is assure everybody that we are all horrible at prayer. And thirdly, by the end of this sermon, you will know the presenter, because he is also the preacher today. So I will be back in a couple of weeks, and I will be very sad if we do the seminar, and you guys aren't all there. So please sign up. Uh, Many of you are are, um, aware that we are in a series called Love Walked Among Us, and uh, it is a focus particularly on Jesus. And there's, there's really three general truths as we look at this series to kind of frame what we're doing here. Uh, number one, God is love. And so love in of itself, the truth, the compassion, the beauty of love originates in who God is. Secondly, Jesus is God, and that is probably the heart and the starting point of what makes christianity distinct it's not just he is a god he is god and thirdly jesus is love and so as we watch jesus who is god literally walk through the pages of scripture we are watching love animated and so the focus of our series here is to watch love animated and and uh we, our text this morning, as you saw, is John 6. And if you haven't already, and you have your Bibles, turn with me there, and we're going to take a look at that. I wanted to start our time, uh, actually, just sharing a little bit about uh, the the saddest and hardest moment in my life. Uh, I grew up in, Lo- was born and raised in Los Angeles. My my parents uh, were Christians. They took us, uh, me and my sister, uh, as kids, to church. And uh, there was this one Sunday where we were at this small church, and I went to Sunday school class, and I looked up, and it was just me and the teacher, the entire class. And the teacher was my mom. And so my dad said, you know, we need to find a church maybe that has a few more children and a few more people. And so we end up at this small little church in East Los Angeles, and shortly after getting there, we discover that my dad had a stomach cancer. And back in the 80s, they did not have a lot of chemistry and knowledge like they do now about chemotherapy and radiation. And so shortly after arriving at that church, uh, my dad passed away a year later. And so it was at that place and at that time uh, that I began to uh, really wrestle with God I wasn't aware that I was wrestling with God, but things began to, to kind of come to a head as I headed into adolescent, and I was looking for a father figure. Uh, I got close to my grandfather. He was a gardener, and so uh, I would go after, high sc- or after class uh, uh, during the week, and I would uh, mow his lawn as he got older, and we would spend time. And shortly after I got closer and closer to my grandfather, he passed away. Now, my senior year of high school, I was, uh, I could say I, I think I was a Christian, but I, I, I just generally was more into a lot of other things besides Jesus. Basketball was my life. I played tons of basketball, and I had a girlfriend. And so in the middle of my senior year, uh, our pastor came to me as a 17-year-old and said, uh, John, we're going to have a, a men's retreat, and I'd like you to come. And I knew in the back of my head that typically the youth didn't go to the men's retreat. It was a bunch of old guys. They were like 30, <laughs> 32, 40, and so. But it is the pastor, and he, and I'm saying, and I'm telling, him, okay, pastor, if you'd like me to go, and he says, I not only want you to go, but I want you to share your testimony. And I thought, testimony. What testimony do I have? And he said, the focus of the retreat is the fatherhood of God. And so I was just so confused and uncomfortable. He he knew my father. He knew my history. I was thinking, why? Why are you asking me to do this? I I sit down at, at a table with a piece of paper, and I'm ready to write my testimony, and I have nothing to write. And so as I begin to scribble whatever I can, I, I begin to break down in tears because I realize I'm angry. In fact, I'm bitter at God. God, I, I know you, and I loved you, and I went to church, and I, and I got baptized, and I came to Jesus as my Savior, and you took my dad. And even though I didn't fully understand that, as I grew closer to my grandfather, you took my grandfather. And so I realized over time that I was feeding on a lot of things in my senior year of high school. Basketball and girlfriend and all these things that I thought mattered. And I realized deep down inside, I was hungry. And that hunger was gnawing. And as I'm writing my testimony out, I realized that hunger was Uh, not satisfied, and if you've ever heard the term hangry, I was hangry. All of us feed on something, something or someone or some things that give us life. And sometimes we don't even know what they are. They're not necessarily those horrible things, but it's not until we get into a comfortable place, an uncomfortable place, that we begin to discover that we're hungrier than we thought. In fact, we might discover we're actually hangrier than we thought. In this morning's passage, we have the opportunity to see what it looks like to feed on Jesus. And now, I know that sounds odd, but let's let's take a look at the passage and just see and and unpack what this looks like. Uh, As we look at verse 1, we need to know that the smell of revolution was in the air. The Jews longed for a hero, not a Marvel superhero, not Captain Marvel, but someone much greater. Generation upon generation was anticipating what the prophets said would be a Messiah, a chosen one. Someone who would liberate the people uh, from uh, foreign oppression, And so some people thought that John the Baptist was the chosen one. Now, John never said that he was the Messiah, but because of the way he taught and with authority and because he had no fear and because he was making the religious establishment kind of nervous, people began to assume maybe he's the hero. Now, all of that came to a crashing halt when he was suddenly executed and beheaded by Herod Antipas. And so we enter today's passage right after John's death, and people are angry and disillusioned. And so naturally, everyone's hopes begin to shift from John the Baptist to his cousin, a guy named Jesus. No one had ever seen someone teach like Jesus did his authority, his wisdom, and on top of that, he did miracles. The sick were healed, the blind gained sight, the lame walked whenever Jesus was around. And so naturally, word about Jesus was spreading throughout the region like wildfire. And so at this point in our passage, Jesus is not only trending, he's going viral. And so look at verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. Verse 10 later tells us that this crowd numbered about 5,000 men. Now, if we include women and children, most scholars estimate that the crowd was as many as 15,000 people. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to do while I was staying here in Arizona is go see a spring training game. And so living in Scottsdale, it's not a far trip. And before you shoot me, let me just confess that I am a Dodger fan, a lifelong Dodger fan. Uh, I grew up just out not too far from the stadium. And so we went out to the Camelback Ranch. Um, and um, it's a beautiful stadium, miniature stadium. And I found out uh, it, it can seat about... 13,500 people if you include the lawn area. So if you've ever been there or to a stadium similar in spring training, try to imagine you pack the stadium out. And that's broadly speaking about how many, when it says there was a large crowd following Jesus, that's how many people that were probably there. And it says specifically these 15,000 are following him because they saw the miraculous signs he was doing. They saw Jesus' power. They wanted more. Remember, revolution is in the air. They're hoping that Jesus is their liberator. But the people not only wanted Jesus for political power, they also wanted personal gain. In other words, they wanted someone who was not only going to save their country, but make their lives better. What about us? We have to ask ourselves is what reasons do we follow Jesus if we do? Is it that we hope he would save our country? Is it that we hope he'll improve our lives as they are? Now Jesus can save countries and improve lives, but This is not necessarily his primary aim. What is it? Let's keep going in the passage. Verse three Jesus went up on the mountain, sat down with his disciples, and now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So we see that Jesus and his disciples sit. Mark 6 tells us that he begins to teach the crowd while he's sitting there, and it was during Passover. Key detail it was during Passover. Take that and kind of store it in a place in your brain somewhere, just on a little shelf. Some of us have more shelves than others. As I get older, there are less and less shelves to store things on. But try to store that. It was during Passover. It's interesting that John just kind of interrupts the narrative, saying, oh, it's Passover. So during Passover, Jesus is teaching a great crowd. It's getting late in the day. The people are hungry. In verse 5 it says, He lifts up his eyes and seeing the large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip... Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6, he said this to test him, for Jesus himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now try to picture we're in Camelback Stadium. There are 15,000 people. Jesus is on the pitcher's mound He begins to move. All 15,000 are now moving and following up into the hills. And as they get out there, he begins to teach. It gets dark. And all of a sudden, someone notices there's no Chick-fil-A around. (laughs) And so being someone who was raised in an Eastern culture, Philip and the disciples are going, we have nothing to feed them, and there's nothing around. Philip is overwhelmed by the crowd of 15,000 and he responds, Jesus, even if we had enough food with eight, to, to buy enough food with eight months of daily wages, we would not have enough. Or in modern day terms, uh, let's say 50,000 generally as a, a broad average salary. Uh, Jesus, even if we had $33,000 of food, even if we had $33,000 of food, we still wouldn't have enough to feed the crowd. Now, let's pause and let's ask, why does Jesus ask Philip? Why does he ask Philip this question? Well, maybe Philip was from Bethesda, a a town that was generally in the region, and maybe Philip knew where the Chick-fil-A's were. But verse 6 tells us that Jesus wanted to test Philip even though Jesus knew what he was about to do. And so why does Jesus test Philip? If he knows that he's about to feed the crowd, why does Jesus still ask him, Philip, what should we do? Why not just do the miracle and let Philip be in all? Jesus sometimes does this funny thing in situations like this just when you know he's about to do something great, he slows down just for a moment, and he creates space. Rather than command food to fall from the sky and everyone go, that is amazing, he simply asks Philip, what what should we do? And in that small moment and in that small space, he allows Philip, just briefly, to wrestle with the problem. It's a problem uh, he can't solve, and he discovers that very quickly. In fact, it's a problem that is overwhelming to him as he faces it. And then he looks back at Jesus and says, $33,000 bucks would not help us, Jesus. You know what it's called when we're overwhelmed with a problem we can't fix and we look to Jesus? It's called faith. Faith is not saying, I can do it because I believe. Faith is saying, I can't do it. I don't know how it's going to happen. Jesus, do something. Help me. One of the reasons Jesus leaves space is because... Faith tends to emerge in space. If Jesus filled the space immediately with his supernatural power, there would be no room or no need for Philip to draw in. Uh, In Luke 24, after Jesus is raised from the dead, there's a story of of him walking with two uh, guys on the Emmaus Road. And as they're walking, I mean, if I was raised from the dead, I would just be like in their faces glowing as big as can be and going, oh. And just say, "Oh, but, but he's walking with them, and he's not saying anything." He's leaving space, and in that space, they're conversing, and he goes, "Oh, what are you guys talking about?" And then I' tell the retelling the story about Jesus. And then in verse 21, it's very interesting, because one of them says, "We had hoped he was the one." So there's a little bit of doubt. There's a wrestling with, I thought, but maybe not. That's not a common way that we look or see faith. Faith is, we see this ladder that I climb up and go, I believe him no matter what. Faith is not a ladder so much that we climb up and show that we have it all together and Jesus, I believe you no matter what. Faith is more like a pit that we fall into and go... I just can't handle life, and Jesus, I need you. And I'm not sure exactly what you're doing. I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but I, I, I don't know where else to turn. While I was wrestling with writing that testimony as a 17-year-old, that was a space that was really uncomfortable, and things in me that were coming out that were very uncomfortable. But God allowed that space through the request of my pastor to kind of wrestle. And what began to emerge is I realized as angry and hurt as I was, I still believed and needed Jesus. I was not happy with the way that my life was unfolding, but God was giving me a chance to begin to draw near to him. And as I did that, and as God was beginning to heal my heart in the writing of this testimony, I was realizing he had not abandoned me. I realized he had placed at least four men in the church who either had no children or only daughters, and those men had taken me under their wing to teach me how to play basketball, or teach me how to wash dishes in a kitchen with his, their, their own family, or taught me how to do construction as I worked for one of their companies. And in the midst of that, I was beginning to realize that my faith was beginning to emerge. How about you? Are you currently facing a problem you can't overcome? Maybe you've tried to solve it and you can't. God's not fixing the problem fast enough. Maybe you're not losing your faith. Maybe he's leaving space, and it's an uncomfortable space, but one that is going to draw you nearer to him. As you wrestle with your inability, your frustration, and even sometimes your hangriness, You may discover at a certain place, no matter how I feel, gosh darn it, I can't help but believe that he is still Lord. It's kind of like what Peter says later, and he goes, where else are we going to turn? In verses... Eight and nine, we find out that the only food the disciples have is the lunch of a poor boy. Five barley loaves. Barley might sound healthy for those of us who are kind of health conscious, but barley was the food of the poor because you just drop it anywhere and it just grows anywhere. And two fish, probably small sardine-like fish, and, and, and they would salt them to preserve them. And so the, the lunch really isn't as, as good as we might think it is. It's, it's five wheat rolls and, and, and fish jerky. And so Jesus gives thanks, breaks the bread, instructs the disciples to dole out the food to everyone. And not only were the 15,000 plus fed, but the scripture tells us there were leftovers. Me being Asian with the biggest fear for an Asian is to invite everyone over and you don't have leftovers. And so that part just kind of warms my heart. Oh, they had leftovers. (laughs) Awesome, Jesus. Now, I always wondered how it happened. You don't know if, as the disciples were going, it was just magically reappearing, reappearing, or did they have a basket? You know, but we're not told. And part of me just wants to know, but that's maybe not the point of the story. Uh, the people were all amazed. And in verse 14, it says the crowd immediately wanted to make Jesus their king, they believe he is, in the, he is the Messiah. But more specifically, as you look at the passage, what is it that they call him? Prophet. 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 Isn't that interesting? Why prophet? Now, remember when I said, store that little thing on the shelf. Take it off the shelf in your brains. And remember that little detail when John said, hey, this was all happening during the Passover. Take it off the brain, and let's talk about the Passover. It's the Jewish celebration to commemorate God's faithfulness in saving his people from bondage in Egypt. And so the tenth and final plague was the angel of death. They would come and kill the firstborn son, and God said to the people, if you would like your son spared, take the blood of an unblemished lamb, put it over the doorpost, and the angel of death would pass over your household, and your son would live. And so that was the final straw for Pharaoh. And he said, get out of here. Moses leads the people out into the desert. And so the people are are in the mindset of celebrating and remembering this. And so here the people are in the desert, literally, they're starving. And they're thinking in their heads, Moses beseeched God for food. God provided manna in the desert. Jesus... Is reenacting what God did for Moses and for the people of God in the desert. In 2 Kings chapter 4, the prophet Elisha fed a hundred men with only 20 barley loaves. He's not quite as good as Moses, but uh, he he, he fed a hundred men with 20 barley loaves. And so, and like today's story, there were leftovers when Elisha did it. So like Moses and like Elisha, Jesus is a prophet. And the people are thinking, this guy is one of the prophets. But Jesus is not only a prophet, but he's so much more and so much better. He is a prophet who has authority, but he is a shepherd. For the one thing that John doesn't tell us in this story is that when all the people were coming and Jesus looked up on the, or looked down and saw all the people Mark chapter 6, verse 34 that is, uh, says that when he saw the crowd, his heart went out to them. Why? Was it because, oh my gosh, they're going to be so hungry. No, Mark says his heart went out to them. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if I was Jesus, and I had not invited these people to follow me, and now they're complaining about being hungry, I'd be annoyed. But that's not Jesus. Jesus' care is not just reenacting Moses or Elisha, but he's, he's acting as the good shepherd. And so for those of us who are familiar with the description of the shepherd in Psalm 23, there's striking, if we had more time, we could put it up on the screen and show the the, the similarities. But isn't it interesting, in today's passage, uh, it says that Jesus commanded them to sit down on the green grass. Why does he say green grass? If you know Psalm 23, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in what kind of pastures? Green pastures and restores my soul. Jesus divided the loaves and fish and fed the crowd. In Psalm 23, it says that the good shepherd will prepare a table before me. And at the end, of course, there are the leftovers, the 12 baskets of bread and fish. And the psalmist says in Psalm 23, My cup overflows. You see... Jesus is not just being a good teacher or a good prophet. He's being a shepherd who has a heart for his people. And one of the ways he wants to show his goodness is to feed his people. And the provision of Jesus is not just for the sake of just giving his his sheep something good to eat, but it's a sign, it's a picture, it's it's a gift to allow them to taste a little bit and to see so much more. You know, one of the things that happened, so eventually I go up to this men's retreat. I share this testimony. I basically shared what I uh, basically shared with just all of you. I sit down. There's about uh, 60 men in the room. The oldest man, uh, his name is What Hen- was Henry. He's about this tall. Janitor of the church. I think at the time he's probably 78 years old. He's sitting in the back. The guy in the front says, uh, uh, we appreciate John's testimony. Is there anything that any of you guys want to share in light of what was shared this morning? Henry walks his way or almost waddles his way all the way up to the front. He gets up on the mic and he says, I am so encouraged by what John just shared. He said, when the Horace uh, first came to our church, uh, his dad was in my Bible study." And I got to know him, and, and shortly after this Bible study started, his dad got sick, he passed away, and my wife and I were always concerned for him and his sister, as well as his mom. And so for the last 10 years, we've been praying every day for them. And I'm, I'm pleased to see that God has not only heard my prayers, but is answering now, I was a naughty, prideful 17 year old who thought I had it all and whatever, and I, but I was in the back sobbing like a baby. Not only because of this man's love, but even when I thought God had turned his eye from me, even when I was wrestling in that space where he seemed to be absent, he was the good shepherd still caring for me as his sheep. Beloved, if you are crying out to God, yes, maybe things are not happening as quickly as you would like because maybe He is creating a space for your faith to emerge, to be tested, to be strengthened. And if that's you, then know that your faith is not in vain. Everything in you and everything in the world is going to tell you, you fool. Why do you keep trusting? Your faith is not in vain because He is not only the good prophet, but He is the good shepherd who when sees His sheep, not only sees them hungry and feeds them, but has a heart for them. And so the people ate that day. They had their fill, but I guarantee you that they were hungry the next day. Remember why the people there? Over and over, John says, because they saw the miracles and they wanted more. They wanted Jesus to make their current life better. And so if you're in John 6, just skip ahead now to verse 30. There's a lot that happens in between, but I I just kind of want to focus and kind of end on this here. So the people, many of the people are still following later on. And in verse 30, uh, there's this conversation that that happens, and, and, and it says, So they said to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So they're still hungry. And they're going, Jesus, can you do it again? We want more. And so our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so they're saying, hey, you know the Moses thing, the Passover thing. Let's see it again, Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. When Jesus provides bread, it is for our blessing. The people ate that day. But they came back wanting more. And so many of us uh, want bread from Jesus. Jesus, this is great. Now, Jesus, can you save our country and can you improve my life? When Jesus provides, it is for our blessing, but it is not the end goal. It's a reminder that he's good and trustworthy. But Jesus' provision of his goodness and the tangible things of life is really a sign and kind of a picture of something much greater that will not ultimately leave us in want. It's what the psalmist says in Psalm 23 when he says, we shall not be in want. And that's why in verse 35, Jesus' answer, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Beloved, Jesus doesn't want to just give you bread. He wants to give you himself. He doesn't just want to make your current life better. He wants to turn your life upside down. Not a life where you remain at the center, and he just kind of improves the edges, he wants to give you a life where He is at the center and you are completely transformed to a different person as His Spirit radiates out from you. Is it wrong to taste of the bread? Of course not. But don't forget that the bread that we eat that God provides points to the bread of life who is Jesus. I grow up after that men's retreat I get called to ministry in that church. I served there for 10 years as an associate pastor. Uh, I am somewhat humbled a little bit, and God was gracious. And then he calls us to plant a church out east in San Bernardino County. And as we're planting that church, uh, if you want to know the details, the gory details of the second most painful season of my life, right before we planted that church, come to the Praying Life Seminar next week (laughs) because that is part of my story because it was in that place God taught me to pray. But as we're planting, my life, and we're about to plant, my life was falling apart. I found myself on the floor, literally, nose pressed to the ground and just crying out to Jesus. Yes, I tasted of the bread. Yes, I I, I fed on him. But at this point, all I had was him. Jesus, I don't know what's going on, but all I know is I need you. I don't need just your provision, but I need the person of Jesus. Beloved, don't just get entertained or satisfied with the provision of Jesus when he wants to give us the person of Jesus. God wants to provide for you, but He wants so much more. Sometimes we just think, well, if He would just fix this problem, if He'd just make a little bread here, then I'll be happy. Uh, Fix my husband, and then my life will be good. Fix my wife, and then my life... Fix my job... Could you just fix my children, fix my money problems? And again, it's not wrong to ask for God for those things, but I guarantee you, even if they are fixed exactly the way you want them, you will be hungry tomorrow. Just one more thing, just a little more bread, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, come and feed them. God calls you to a life to following Jesus, of feeding on him, one that is not easy but is ultimately glorious, one that calls us to die in love, one that calls us to follow in the very footsteps of Jesus. One of the beautiful things about that I love about redemption churches as I visited different churches during our time here is that every week communion is served. And in just a moment, you'll be led to and allowed and invited to feed. On the signs or, or symbols of Jesus's broken body and his bloodshed. But before you do, I, I want to give you some, I, I want to pray and then just give you a little bit of opportunity to reflect before you come forward as you are so led. Uh, so let's pray. Father, I just thank you. I thank you that your son Jesus is the good shepherd. And even when we are wrestling, when we are, are, are hangry, You do not cease to be the good shepherd, and you do not cease to provide. Even when you're creating space, you are loving us, and so, Lord, would you uh, just allow us the space, even in the next few minutes, just to come to you and and wrestle with you, and that we might draw near to you, and that you, by the power of your Spirit, would, would allow the seeds of faith to emerge. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.